Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, the Global Chief Investment Officer. And uh, today we are going to delve into the dark arts of uh, monetary policy and uh, and central banks. And today I'm very happy to have uh, Stefan Gerlach, our EFG's Chief Economist, our Chief Economist, uh, joining us. Uh, Stefan, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, it's great to great to have you again. Um, I still remember your your very first podcast uh, <laughs> with us, which was last summer, in fact. And uh, you talked uh, about being in the most tanned monetary policy committee in uh, in Mauritius. Yes, exactly in Mauritius. <laughs> so I, I still still very much remember that. So uh, uh, unfortunately, um, UK weather this year hasn't been that great. <laughs> we're definitely not tanned here in the UK at the moment. Uh, so um, today we're going to um, talk about um, the the Fed and the ECB and the SMB because a lot has changed and there's a lot going on at the moment and I guess lots of controversies, particularly around inflation. So maybe, uh, Stefan, let's start with the Federal Reserve. And um, obviously we had Chair Powell talking just, um, uh, just yesterday, but maybe we step back a bit and just talk a little bit about... Um, the dilemma the the Fed has obviously we have the short term inflation numbers going up, you know um, the Fed in particular and and us and others are saying well this is transitory um, we don't need to worry about this too much just yet um, but obviously we've had CPI data that's probably surprised us on the upside a little bit in the short term for sure uh, CPI inflation is now. Uh uh, in uh, in June, reached five five point four percent in the U.S. And that's uh, if you have a two percent inflation target. Although that target is for PCE inflation or inflation me- measured using the deflated for personal consumption expenditure, um, which, which normally runs a bit lower. But if you do have a target of two percent and uh, CPI inflation is uh, is five point four, uh, you know that's. Uh, uh, that's that's awkward. That's awkward for uh, for uh, for any central bank. Yeah. I think the Fed anticipated, as we did, uh, that inflation would pick up um, this spring for um, for one very good reason, and that is the. Uh, um, I mean, when you calculate inflation over twelve months, then as you move from one month to the next, the, uh, there's a data point uh, twelve months ago that drops out of the calculations, and that meant that the um, the very low and even negative inflation rates that we saw a year ago, they would drop out of the calculations this spring, and that would sort of mathematically push up the 12-month inflation rate. That, of course, base effect we all knew was there, and that would push up uh, inflation quite a bit. Uh, That wasn't surprising. What is surprising is that the income in the new inflation data has been much stronger than one would have anticipated and that started in February, and that was still the case in in June. So, uh, I mean, that's the surprise. And what are the components of that inflation data, Stefan? That has been the positive surprise. Well, it looks like, in particular, um, uh, surprisingly, used cars uh, and uh, used trucks have uh, sort of p- purely from an accounting perspective accounted for a very large part of the of the rise in in prices and that the reason for that is uh, is not that everybody loves cars suddenly but there are problems uh, supplying new cars and, uh, and it has to do with the lack of uh, of chips in the car industry and uh, uh, and so on and it's sort of symptomatic of the problems that you have when you restart the economy 
the economy is opening up, you restart the economy, there's surge in demand. Uh, and uh, so that has played a very big role in that specific case. Also some other, some, some other uh, industries as well that have uh, uh, been um, affected in the same way. For instance, uh, transportation, airline prices are going up and so on. So a large part of this can be attributed to the reopening of the economy. Um, I mean, that's... I mean that's all very well and fine. The the uh, the risk of the the concern I think the Fed has and and others is that this could could uh, continue much longer than was uh, initially envisaged. So I guess the big surprise really has been that as this higher inflation data has come out, and um, you know, and I think most people have kind of anticipated it, and certainly has been a concern, certainly for many, that inflation is kind of getting out of control. But at the same time, we've seen the long end of the bond market actually rallying, i.e. yields, long-term yields going down at this point of um, at this point of the cycle, which to many is just a big surprise. You know, um, there is kind of disconnect between higher inflation data and surprisingly higher inflation data and the bond market rallying. What do you put that uh, down to? I think to some extent, I mean, the Fed has signaled, uh, we have seen it from instance from the dot plots, uh, these famous plots where the members of the FOMC are asked, what interest rates do you think you will set at the end of this year, next year, and so on and so forth. They've been pricing in interest rate increases. And as it looks like the Fed is concerned about uh, inflation. And of course, if the Fed is concerned about inflation, that's great because uh, then investors don't have to be concerned about inflation. And I guess that sort of credibility effect has sort of worked this way uh, uh, through. But uh, it, nevertheless, it's quite surprising that it has because uh, the run-up in inflation has been so strong. Um, and I think there's every risk um, to expect this to be this increase in inflation to be more persistent and larger and more persistent than the Fed anticipated uh, it, it may not be permanent but at least it will stay i mean the staying power is much greater than i think we thought mm. obviously powell spoke um yesterday um and then the rhetoric from the fed actually since the beginning of the year and, and even last year has been around the focus being on employment obviously the fed has a dual mandate between inflation and employment obviously employment is the winner um at, at this stage, and and Powell reiterated that that um, the commitment to to continue with a very easy policy with QE and so on and so forth, and not really getting any signals at all just just now, when they might change that. Um, so with this focus on employment, maybe you can you know delve into the employment situation a little bit, and and maybe that's kind of where the um, uh, I guess the reasons for this bond market rally and the reasons why the Fed has been so cautious. Uh, resides. So uh, I think it's useful to take a step back first. The Fed had a review of its monetary policy strategy that came out about a year ago in September last year. And in it, uh, the Fed did a number of things, but it, it also said that uh, it felt that it had been too sort of uh, too quick to tighten monetary policy in the past. It had feared that the, the, uh, the tightening of labor markets uh, would trigger inflation. In fact, it never did, or it did much less of that. So not only does the Fed have a mandate, as you say, for maximum employment, as very few central banks have, but it's also come around to the view that it has been too uh, too quick to take action uh, in the past, and, and, and that has sort of unnecessarily kept 
the unemployment rate a little too high and they will not want to do that anymore they they said they made very clear last year that they will only um tighten monetary policy if they actually see inflation increase if they see the tight labor market this is fueling inflation and that of course it's it's uh, it's not doing um so uh, throughout the year it was or since just yeah, since the beginning of the year since since uh, since february or so i mean the signals coming out of the fed uh, has been very consistent. The Fed has said, "Well, the economy is recovering, and you know, inflation is moving up a little bit." But it's very clear that the, the, the job market has a very long way to go, and they've been uh, repeating this message of uh, the long market and uh, the job market having a very long, long way to go. Um, and uh, uh, Chair Powell did it also yesterday. So it, it's uh, they obviously feel that. Uh, um, it would be far too early now to tighten monetary policy. The unemployment rate uh, now is 5.9%. It has fallen very, very little this year. It fell very rapidly. So it peaked at almost at 14, at 15% last year, 14.8, I think. And it fell very rapidly. But that decline in the unemployment rate it essentially stopped. We've seen very little um, decline in the unemployment rate, uh, even though... Uh, hiring has been uh, very rapid, um, uh, so I guess the Fed is is is, uh, is saying that uh, yeah we'll we'll wait until the job market uh, sort of tightens up a bit more, and that seems to be happening very slowly, and therefore Fed policy seem, seems to be on hold almost. So, what do you think are the reasons for why the unemployment rate um, hasn't been coming down? I think you mentioned that over the last well. Last six months, it's only come down one percentage point, uh, which seems very tame compared to the dropping the unemployment uh, rate last year. What, what what do you think are the reasons for that? You know, two factors. The first is that uh, the uh, the unemployment rate uh, surge or, or labour market. Uh, was really hit by COVID last year. A lot of people became unemployed, others left the job market and so on and so forth. There is massive slack, I think, in the in the market. And even though hiring has been very rapid, there I mean there's a long way to go. Um, and I think that was the reason why sort of in, a, in the first six months or so after um, up until October or so last year, um, it was essentially uh, lots of people had been laid off and they had been laid off temporarily by their employers. That is, they retained contact with their employers uh, and they went back to them when the market opened up. Um, now, so that sort of was one reason. Uh, there were simply so many of them, so even though you, you hired lots of them, the unemployment rate, that simply has a, so, so, such a long way to go. What's interesting now is that if you look at just the number of quits in the in the labor market and um, and ask how many people are leaving the, the jobs right now given the unemployment rate of 5.9 percent there's an unusually large number of people quitting the jobs now that means that they are actually they feel this is a very good time to leave the jobs and go look for something something different obviously workers seems to be seem to be feeling here that the job market is tight it's not hard to get a job and this is a good time for you to leave if you want to go and look for something else and this sort of leads to i mean yes many people are being hired but also many people are leaving their jobs looking for something else and that seems to be an important factor delaying the um, uh, the uh, the reduction of the unemployment rate there are lots of people yeah lots of people are looking are leaving looking for, for a new job which is uh, 
um, a bit unusual. Yeah, bit I was, unusual. I, yeah, I was going to say that um, one thing, so certainly from a lot of company calls and, and presentations I've been to, um, um, particularly in the leisure industry, restaurants and so on and so forth, they've been finding it very hard to recruit people. Um, yes. And uh, quite a, a yeah. fair number have been blaming Amazon and Deliveroo and and uh, yes. all of these groups because A, they pay more. Um, uh, so we've typically seen, say, uh, you know, Amazon employees getting, you know, $15 an hour compared to they would have got half that or, or, or close to sort of 10 or 12 and then saying, well, actually I'd rather work there than, than work in a, in, in a restaurant flipping burgers, for example, uh, certainly at the, the, uh, the low end. Um, is that something that, um, you've seen any studies kind of showing that this is already starting to have an impact or is still very well, early days? I mean, it does look like, uh, workers are not that happy to work. I mean, there's, there are not, now, new industries uh, or, or industries or sectors of the U.S. economy that are expanding very rapidly, and through the mail order business, delivering business, and so on and so forth, they are expanding rapidly. There's a surge in people who want to have goods uh, transported to their home. They want to mail order things, and so on and so forth. These firms offer quite good salaries. You don't have much contact with other people. The risk of getting sick if you're not uh, vaccinated is much lower than if you work in the restaurant. Um, so there seems to be some structural changes happening in the U.S. economy, uh, and this, uh, this, these factors seem to play an, an important, uh, an important role. Um, yeah, I mean, we we see if you look at um, earnings growth in the U.S. economy in in recent months, uh, earnings growth is is positive. Earnings are going up, particularly so for some industries. They aren't that attractive anymore, such as, for instance, the whole hospitality industry. That's hotels, restaurants, bars, and so on and so forth. Earnings growth is quite quite strong. I think it has been around 10% for the last four months um, uh, annualized. Um, so, so it's clear that that sector is not very attractive. Uh, uh, and it's clear that the people, yeah, people don't want to work there. Of course, they hire lots of people still, but they the companies report problems attracting uh, attracting uh, workers and their earnings are picking up in the sector. Uh, um, so, so it looks like there is something holding back supply of labor to that, uh, to that sector. I guess the other factor, which is obviously quite important, something we discussed earlier, is the reason why people are not necessarily going back and rushing back into the labor market. Uh, could be obviously um, uh, schools, you know, schools yes, uh, opening exactly. up in late August uh, in the US and, and September. Um, I guess that's a very important point, given that many schools have not been open or they've all been homeschooling, and that's been very difficult yeah. if you're if you're looking after children at home. Um, yes. um, getting back to work has been um, a, a huge challenge. I mean, I guess it'd be quite interesting to see um, the data coming coming out when people are back to school uh, what sort of indicators should we be looking at to kind of give us a guide indeed whether things are returning back to normal i mean i think one very important uh, thing is, is just to, so to see how many people find jobs every every month you would expect that to continue uh, to continue to be very strong going forward this would be a key indicator um, we would expect uh, uh, also to see 
perhaps that if people are more willing to go back to work, then earnings growth would come down, and uh, so we would expect we would expect to see that. Um, I mean, as you suggest, I think the the fall could be quite could be quite different because. Uh, Schools will probably be generally open in the fall, and um, this problem that some parents may have that the, the children are home, they can't go to you know they can't go to the to work. That factor may fall out. Moreover, a lot of these temporary unemployment support programs and so on they end in September and so on. So I think probably September is the key month here to here to watch and see what uh, what happens. Furthermore, of course, vaccinations are continuing, right? So and. and uh, uh, you know, in a month, there, will, there is a still large number of people. Two months, there's still a large number of people who will be who will be vaccinated, and that will also help out. So, so um, perhaps September is really the key month for for the U.S. for the U.S. labor market. Plainly, the Fed is looking very hard at the unemployment or unemployment rate and the job market more generally. Investors tend to focus on inflation, but the Fed tends to be focusing on the job market. And uh, yeah, my suspicion is that probably the second half of the year will look quite different from the first half mm. of the year. Ironically, you might flip. You, yeah. You'll have inflation coming down and employment going up. Um, so uh, maybe a slightly different profile as, as we go into the second half of the year. So kind of key conclusion with the Fed, yes, they're looking at, Unemployment rate, minority unemployment rate, something that you've yes. discussed before. Um, we'll look very carefully at uh, jolt surveys and, and job openings to see whether some of those jobs have been fulfilled. Um, and uh, that probably is kind of where we get the next clues, really, in terms of the Fed and, and whether they taper um, or, um, uh, you know, or continue with these, um, I, I guess, super stimulative policies. Uh, for the yes, I think that's quite right. I mean, I think we have now to look instead of the standard macroeconomic indicators, the, the overall unemployment rate or inflation pressures and so on and so forth. I think we really now have to drill into the uh, uh, into the labour market to look in great detail what's what's going on there. I think that would be the focus over the next uh, next coming months. Excellent. So let's let's uh, cross the um, the pond uh, across the Atlantic and uh, uh, into Europe. Uh, and uh, I guess the big news over the last few weeks has been the ECB's review, um, which uh, which obviously surprised everybody because it kind of leaked a little bit earlier than people were expecting, um, which is obviously um, a, a very interesting thing for the ECB because it's not typically, I don't recall them being uh, so um, so cavalier to actually um, to kind of re- release their reviews way before they were expected to. Um, uh, obviously, um, you, you've done some very interesting work in this space. Maybe you can uh, you can enlighten us. So I think it, it's true. I mean, most commentators thought that the ECB would re, uh, release its review at the same time as the Fed released its review last uh, last year, which is around September first. Uh, the, you know, the vacations are over, the new year is starting in many ways and so on and so forth. But they released its review on the 8th of July, um, so about two weeks, uh, two months earlier than anticipated. In many ways, I thought this review was what, you know, it said things that you, um, that you, uh, I think most of us had expected. Uh, but there are some things uh, 
that are novel. And I think very frequently with the ECB, and the ECB is slightly different from other central banks. Other central banks, uh, they tend to have quite a bit of, uh, of agreement in the uh, decision-making bodies about how they should do things. But ECB comes with central bankers from 19 different countries with very different monetary histories and so on. There's a lot of disagreement about the right way of doing monetary policy in general. And that means that uh, uh, perhaps uh, official documents from the ECB are not always as explicit as they would be from countries, from central banking countries, where there's much more agreement about monetary policy. So reading what ECB writes about monetary policy, very frequently you have to read between the, the lines, the, the bright spots are in the gray areas, and, in fact. So, for instance, the ECB said that HICP inflation, they will continue to use that to measure inflation. That was widely expected. But it went on to say that we will now also look at the cost of housing uh, for um, uh, for households. And of course, you know, the cost of housing is a very large chunk of the, uh, of the monthly or annual expenses of a household. And disregarding that uh, the way the BECB has done in the past is just very hard to justify, particularly in a situation where house prices rising very rapidly. So the ECB said uh, it will take this into account. It didn't say exactly how, and this is a very difficult um, problem. The idea is sort of uh, taking into account the cost of living in housing in some way, not just the cost of buying a house. Um, there are other factors that may matter. For instance, uh, typically, if interest rates go down, house, house prices go up. So it could be that the the, the cost of the house goes up, but the cost of living it actually falls, depending on how much mortgage interest rates uh, decline. So they will take this into account. And I think this is something that uh, some of the sort of hardliners, if you like, in the uh, in the governing council will have, uh, have wanted, because they have said on a number of occasions in the past, yes, inflation is too low, but of course, house costs are rising very rapidly. So uh, if you don't take that into account, we may think inflation is lower than actually it really is. So that is a new thing. It said, uh, the review said that the new target would be symmetric. Of course, in the past, the ECB, the, ECB the, the president, President Draghi used to say that, but now the formal document says that. Um, the new target will be symmetric uh, and it uh, will be for inflation of 2%. And I think that's very important. It's now in the document. That means that everybody must have signed up on that. When the president is asked by a journalist, is the target symmetric or not? Um, when he answers that or he or she answers that question, that's really a statement of what he or she thinks is the general view in the governing council. When it's written in a formal document, then you know that the governing council has signed up on this. So the fact that this this is now generally agreed, I think, is a big is a big difference. Um, the fact that it's symmetric around two percent is uh, is important, in particular since the review also said that temporarily you can have inflation above two percent. Now, normally, um, if you uh, or take a step back, uh, the ECB started in 1999 with a, a, a sort of zone of indifference for inflation. If inflation was between zero and 2%, everything was fine. It was below 2% or above 2%, well, that wasn't so great, but it, zero to two, anywhere there would be fine. And that was a very wide zone. And then in 2003, when it had its first review after four years, it said, actually, within the zone, we're gonna aim at, at the level which is below but close to 2%, which most people thought was probably something like 1.8%. Now, at that point, 
people still thought of 2% as a ceiling for inflation. And it's hard to control inflation. So if you have a ceiling at 2%, you don't want to go over 2%. As inflation starts to move up towards 1.8%, uh, I think the governing council had this sense that it doesn't make sense really to stimulate it more. Because if we do that, we might push it up a little bit. But if you're unlucky, we push it up too far. And then we are into this 2 2.5%, this interval, where we definitely don't want to be. So the fact that there was this ceiling remain meant that the governing council really never pushed so hard to hit 1.8 percent and that is one reason i think why the average inflation rate in the eurozone has actually been 1.4 percent if you go back to the start of of the ecb so the fact that we now have a symmetric target for two percent and uh, inflation above two percent is allowed is acceptable um that is very important i mean most obviously if you have a two percent target Inflation is just as likely to be above 2% as below 2%. Half of the time, it probably is above 2%. So this really changes things a lot. Another big change, I think, was that unconventional monetary policy has become conventional. And the reason that is important in the case of the ECB was that, as you will remember, in 2008, when Lehman Brothers went belly up, the Fed went straight to QE. Uh, the ECB went to QE in January 2015, which is almost seven years later. And the reason for that was that the ECB was not at all sort of thinking of unconventional policy measures. They sort of had a picking order of policies to use. And I think that's the right way to think about it. They sort of they acted as if they had a picking order. The, the top one was interest rates. And then you sort of cut that to zero, then you could start thinking of other things, forward guidance, you could, you could uh, think of negative interest rates, uh, long-term, um, or these TLTROs, these long-term refinancing operations for the banks and so on. And at the bottom of that long list was QE. So the uh, ECB sort of acted as if it sort of had to work its way through all these policies before it got to asset purchases. And that was why it, does, it took such a long time. And that was why the European economy really uh, got into that sort of sinkhole, if you like. It stayed for so long, growing so slowly with, with such weak demand that the problems really started to fester. Now the ECB can just directly go to QE if it wants to, because asset purchases, like forward guidance, like zero interest rates, like these uh, long-term uh, refinancing operation, they're all part of the framework. They can all be used immediately, and that will make it a distance, uh, a difference in the future. It's just so important uh, that you act promptly as a central bank uh, if something goes wrong. So that, that's important. And then we have, um, they mentioned climate factors will be incorporated in the, in, in the framework. And I just read today a very interesting speech um, by Isabel Schnabel, was given yesterday, uh, she's a member of the executive board where she discusses this. And there she basically says that in future QE, if you're going to do QE, for instance, in corporate bonds, well, we may think about green versus brown bonds. When we talk about our um, our collateral framework, what type of assets that we, we accept as collateral for lending operations to banks, well, we may also there think about green versus brown bonds and so on. So this will this will change things going forward. It also said that it would improve its communication of policy decisions. These are arcane, almost, uh, I mean, this document that looks like part of scripture, uh, the introductory statements uh, to, to the press conferences, I have not been 
have not been have not been clear. They don't sound like something like Madame Lagarde would write, and I suspect that this whole explaining policy would become much clearer. And finally, the ECB said, and henceforth, we do a review every five years. It was 18 years since the last review, or 19 years since the last review, 18 years, and now it's going to do there every five years. And I think that's probably a very good idea. So there has been a number of of, of changes here. I think probably the most important one is the it's clear that the framework is now symmetric and it's clear that inflation can exceed 2% temporarily. Yeah. That would make it easier for the ECB to, to sort of go all out and try to hit the target. So I, I think this is a, kind of quite critical, actually, because I think, as we've seen over the last you know, 10 years plus, that you know, European growth has been very, very weak, partly, partly because policy, both fiscal and monetary, has probably been yes. too tight. Um, yes. So, so, yes. so, should we be thinking, in terms of policy at least, that we're going to see more stimulation than we've seen in the past? So, I think in terms of monetary policy, we will not see more stimulation than in the past. The, the ECB has really gone full full tilt. Uh, the big question, as you suggest, is: uh, I mean, fiscal policy has been too tight uh, across across Europe, and in in many ways. Um, uh, this is a uh, sort of it comes from a sort of you know wrong way of sort of thinking about things in the euro area. There's been a long focus on the stock of of, of public debt, and it's certainly true that the countries that did have problems uh, uh, during the crisis they all had uh, uh, they all had weak public finances in in um, in many ways. But it also seems a bit strange to sort of um, to maintain the previous rules. They were all conditioned on a situation where you had real interest rates at perhaps at 3%. Now real interest rates are essentially zero for government borrowing. And that is a very big change in the, in the economic environment. It would, you, you would think that it would make sense to, uh, it would make sense to uh, in light of this structural change in the economy, also update the um, the uh, fiscal framework within the European Union. You know the limits on public debt and, and public borrowing and so on. And there, I, I am uh, moderately hopeful. I mean, for instance, suppose that you um, suppose that the EU said that some parts of of, of uh, for instance, infrastructure investment. That normally is conducive to more economic growth. It reduces costs for companies. You build new highways, transportation costs for all you maintain highways. There are few potholes. You know, this is enormously expensive for transportation companies. We build new uh, new train lines and so on and so forth. You could exclude some of this, for instance, from the calculation uh, of, of deficits, right? But we have seen in Europe in the last, uh, well, since the since the global financial crisis, that in many countries, if you have to sort of fix your fiscal problems, you cut investment, public investment, and that cannot be the right, that cannot be the right solution. So, perhaps one could do something there. One could perhaps also shift the framework sort of more in the direction of, um, you know, instead of looking at the amount of debt the countries have, how much of uh, how much sort of how large interest payments do they do they face. Uh, uh, look at the total cost of, of borrowing instead and, and, and say, well, uh, there's a limit on the amount of if, for instance, if you have to pay more and so much, so and so much 
uh, of national income in, 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 in paying government borrowing, well, if that's you exceed this limit, you have to start reducing government borrowing. Well, I can think of a number of things, but I do, do think fiscal policy has been um, has been far too tight in the last a decade and, and and even as Isabel Schnabel mentioned in the speech she says this is one reason why the euro area has been so weak and this is one reason why inflation has been so has been so low so we can certainly look forward to some policy green shoots developing i guess one of the other sort of key things is around this kind of green bonds versus brown bonds and collateral requirements and uh, and so on and so yes. forth um, which obviously is very interesting. I guess the implication of that is the cost of financing for, um, you know, I, I guess environmentally dirty companies um, is going to go up, you know, uh, yes. substantially. Um, and uh, and obviously for clean, clean envi- or environmentally clean companies, they will even even go down. Is that the kind of broad implication? So that is sort of one direct uh, implication. If the ECB says we will not accept brown bonds or the haircuts uh, that we use on brown bonds are going to be larger. Of course, when a bank comes to the ECB and says, we'd like to borrow from you, uh, we'd like to borrow, uh, and here I have a, a, a bond, uh, it's worth 100, how much do you lend? Uh, then the haircut, uh, it could be 10%, so the ECB would, line, would lend 90, or it could be 30%, so they would lend 70. And of course, if they have higher haircuts, on brown bonds, that would that would make banks less keen to hold these brown bonds, and that could have a big impact on the relative yeah, rate of return. What is important is also that the ECB can do a number of things that sort of uh, sort of further the whole growth of the green finance, uh, the green financial sector. For instance, if the ECB um, adopts new requirements in terms of disclosure. Uh, for firms and so on and so forth, right? That would sort of give a jolt to this whole idea of coming up with common standards, etc. And uh, you know that, that may also be good for investors if there's a, as a, an agreed uh, ways of valuing these risks. If the, B, if the ECB, for instance, says to banks that we need to uh, we need to know um, you know how much environmental risks you hold on your portfolio, that may also be good for. For investors, they can price uh, the shares in these companies better, and so on and so forth. So, not only will it make an impact on 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 direct relative rates of return on these on these securities by impacting on the demand for them, but it can also spur the whole development of the of the sort of green financial industries sector and so on. And that could be a that could be a very good thing. Mm, absolutely. So, certainly, the first um, the first I guess implication of this review is. I guess a much more progressive, much more modern ECB. Um, yes, and uh, indeed, indeed that's that, a very good way of putting it. Uh, that certainly seems to come through. So, um, moving then um, to the centre of Europe is obviously Switzerland and the SMB. Um, now, SMB has obviously starred a lot of their policies around what the ECB is doing uh, or has been doing in the past, um, but the SMB, of course, has not reacted as yet to this to this shift. What does the Swiss National Bank do in this uh, in in this scenario? Uh, what do you expect from them? So I think they are in a slightly difficult uh, situ- uh, situation. So the 
The ECB, as you know, started in, in 1999, and in 1999, the s had a very big review of its monetary policy strategy, and I think a very impressive and successful review uh, that had it essentially abandoned monetary targeting. Money had always played an important role in monetary policy in Switzerland, just as it did in Germany. Um, but the, ECB, the SNB essentially dropped its uh, the weight it attached to money. We still look at it, but it was not. Uh, it didn't play such a critical role as it had in the past. And they introduced an explicit target for inflation, which was exactly the same as in the ECB, zero to two percent inflation. Um, and a very number of uh, a number of changes that uh, that they uh, undertook. And as I said, it was a very impressive review. Well, now 20 years has gone, and the Fed last year had a review that essentially said that we're going to do average inflation targeting in the future. Yes, not going to look at inflation from year to year. The ECB has this review now, and the ECB says, oh, actually, we are going to be abandoning that zero to two um, zone of indifference for inflation that we used to have, and which the S&P still has, and we're going to go for 2% target. So this really changes the uh, the environment in which the SNB is operating. Suppose we see higher inflation in the European Union uh, coming from the fact that the SNB, the ECB, is now more willing to really go for two percent. Well, that means that the Swiss franc is going to be uh, continuing to appreciate a little faster than it has in in the past. And um, if the Swiss franc is appreciating, of course, interest rates in Switzerland will have to be. A little bit lower than they were before, right? We would expect the the interest rate differential to over time, on average, match the differences in inflation rates, and uh, and therefore the change in the exchange rate over time. So the SMB is going to be very close to zero in the future, and be very quick to hit zero, and be very quick, perhaps, to have to push interest rates below zero. And there's a limit to how far you can push them. Um, so as it has been doing the last six years, as you know, the SNB last changed interest rates in January 2015, more than six years ago, and has for the last six and a half years been essentially relying on foreign exchange market influences. I will see, think we will see more of this. We will see very low interest rates here, episodes perhaps of negative interest rates, episodes of heavy intervention in the foreign exchange market. So I think the, uh, the SNB is... Um, it's really, it's really stuck. Uh, they show no sign of changing its uh, its strategy. Uh, they say they're happy with the strategy and so on. So I, I suspect this is uh, we will see a lot more in the coming years of what we've seen in the last in the last five six years. And the sense of being radical. Um, obviously, you mentioned the first review they did uh, back in '99. And at the time, that would have been be seen as very, very radical. Do you think they will do something as radical today? No, I don't think they are in that in sort of thinking at all along those lines. Uh, I mean, they say in public, and of course, I mean, they were asked by journalists. The chairman of the governing board was asked by journalists uh, about this, uh, this, uh, the Fed change, and the, and the. I guess so. The, the ECB change, and he feels that is, you know, they're very, they're very happy with their, with their strategy. Uh, and interestingly, I mean, in Switzerland, 
many people say, oh, it's fine to have this target. I mean, it looks like the SMB effectively have a 1% inflation target. People say, oh, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, uh, it's fine to have a 1% inflation target. But of course, they're quite steamed up, in fact, about the consequences of these targets. People do not like the negative interest rates. And we have the lowest interest rates of any central bank in the world. They're minus 75 basis points. They're not very happy in the, by property prices, housing prices, apartment prices that are going up very, very rapidly. Um, and they're not very happy about the fact that uh, uh, as a consequence of the foreign exchange market intervention that the S&P has to engage in, since you can't really use the interest rate tool anymore, as a consequence, of them, the foreign exchange reserves of the SB are growing very, very rapidly. It's humongous. Uh, balance sheet is about one trillion uh, Swiss francs now. Uh, uh, and they're not happy about that. And of course, the politicians, uh, they say, oh, the SB is sitting on one trillion in foreign assets. They're not going to be needing one trillion of foreign assets. Perhaps they should give the part of them to us. So the SMB gets sort of dragged into this uh, this political game through the back through the back door. So it's odd. It's odd here. People are very happy with the SMB, but are not happy with any of these things that I think uh, reflects the SMB's policy choices so far. I guess the conclusion is that they've done too good a job. <laughs> In many ways, they have. I mean, they are singularly credible. I mean, it's a very good outfit. It's a very very competent people at the SMB, and they have been. They have been hesitant in the past to adopt sort of a quick uh, or to, to sort of go with the flow. They really thought through things very carefully. And they did have this really impressive review in, in 1999, 2000, as I, as I said. But they've been, been quite slow in, in the past. But I, I think it's true that the economic environment has changed very much in the last 10 years. We have realized that there is such a thing as too low inflation. We have realized that the, in uh, that the, Bond yields could be negative. Um, there are some entirely new things and new animals that have been, I don't think any central banks ever thought thought, thought about before. I mean, the world changes too much, so much. One, I think one needs to uh, recognize that and see what one can, what implications that has for one's policies, and and perhaps think about ways of uh, ways of changing. So um, we have to see. But my suspicion is that we will not see much change from the from the S&B. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye out on that. So, um, Stefan, listen, thank you very much um, for uh, for walking us down um, monetary policy and uh, and all the vagaries of, of, of the cent- different central banks. It's obviously a very fascinating time in central bank land uh, in terms of these reviews. And, and obviously, we're going to watch very carefully what the ultimate policies are going to be from these reviews uh, so again thank you very much stefan for uh, for spending the time i think it was absolutely fascinating very interesting and uh, no doubt um, even myself and our listeners are more enlightened than we were before so um, thank you very much for uh, for that thank you thank you that was that was fun it was enjoyable great so um, with that we will stop and um, thank you very much everybody for listening Uh, If you want to hear more, there's plenty of podcasts in your library you can go back and uh, listen to. Um, And uh, indeed, if you were interested, you could go back to Stefan's first podcast. I think it was around June last year. Um, 
but uh, yeah please do listen to the library a lot of the content we have is is actually um, um, it's still very very fresh we, we try not to to go real time on these things uh, but uh, please do do that and of course if you have any questions please feel free to email us at beyond at fgam.com uh, thank you very much and we'll speak to you again next week <laughs>